Well, good morning. It's really good to see everybody. I've missed you while I've been away, and I haven't preached in a month, so you probably ought to buckle your seatbelts, um, get out some survival supplies. I don't know, pray really hard that I preach this message quicker than maybe I usually do, but I'm glad to be here. I hope you are too. And uh, we've been, if you've been with us, you know this, studying uh, together Jesus' parables this summer. We're going to conclude this series uh, next Sunday and then resume our study through Romans, and today I'm going to take you to, uh, through two very short parables, which Jesus uses to tell essentially the same message. They're known as the, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price, and these two parables challenge us with this one question, which is, where's your treasure? Where's your treasure? I want you to turn, if you will, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. Listen to the word of God. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it. This is the word of the Lord. God's people say, amen. Amen. Well, I think you'll agree with me. Everyone likes treasure stories, right? Uh, Treasure hunts, maps, and codes, and, you know, buried treasure. It's why, honestly... People buy billions of dollars of lottery tickets, and it's why lottery jackpots dominate the news like they are right now, right? How much? Uh, $1.55 billion is the mega millions, in case you were wondering. Some of you are nodding your head. You already got your ticket, right? God's watching. I'm just telling you. But we're into that, right? We love stories about buried treasure. I don't know if you remember, there was a story, it's about 10 years old now, 2013, a couple uh, somewhere up in the gold country here in Northern California in the foothills. They were wandering over their property one day. They saw by this tree a partially buried can, rusty can, and they dug it up and they found seven more cans, eight cans in total, all full of gold coins. More than 1,400 coins in total. It's about $28,000 in face value, the coins. They were struck in the latter part of the, the 1800s, but they were valued today at more than $10 million. It, it was believed to be the most valuable hidden treasure ever uncovered in the United States. Jesus, in these two parables, this pair of parables is telling us that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. It's a treasure of incalculable worth. I wonder if you've ever thought about it like that. Now, to understand Jesus' stories here, we need to understand what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of heaven. He he uses different names for the kingdom in the Gospels. Maybe you've noticed this in Mark and Luke. It's the kingdom of God. In Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven because of Matthew's Jewish sensibilities. We've talked about this before. If you go to other parts of the New Testament, it'll talk about Christ's kingdom. And all these terms are pointing to the same reality. So what is the kingdom? Well, when we think of a kingdom, we, we think typically of a 
geopolitical nation like the United Kingdom, you know, a particular land in a particular region of the globe. But in God's kingdom, at least at this point in God's story, it doesn't refer to geography or politics, but it refers to the realm of God's gracious and good rule. That's the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is where his gracious and good rule extend over human hearts, hearts that have bowed low before the feet of King Jesus. Now, this is why we see things like this in Matthew chapter 4, 17. Jesus is launching, inaugurating his ministry, and his first message is repent for, do you remember? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the very first thing he, he says. He's saying the king is here, and therefore where the king is, that's where his kingdom is, and the reign and rule of God is breaking in to human history. Now, just as an aside, that's why pretty much everywhere Jesus ever went, things got better. You ever notice that? Because the king is there. And, and that is what happens under the good and gracious rule of God. And, and part of what that means, you need to understand this, is to enter God's kingdom is the same thing as receiving eternal life, or as we often say, being, being saved. That's why Christ followers in the New Testament are called citizens of the kingdom. See, everyone who belongs to God through faith in Jesus, they have surrendered their lives to Jesus' lordship, and they are kingdom people. And the thing that I think sometimes confuses us today is that today God's kingdom is spiritual and it's intangible and invisible. But the Bible tells us one day Jesus is going to return, right? And and when he does, we read this in Revelation eleven fifteen. When he returns, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Revelation 21 is telling the story of everything being wrapped up, the consummation of the cosmos. And it says, on that day, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That's why he has good plans for us that we were singing about. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe every tear away from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The kingdom of this world will pass away because the kingdom of God will come in fullness. And when God's kingdom comes in fullness, new heavens, new earth, one day that kingdom will be visible, universal, eternal. That's why Jesus encouraged us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Remember that part, your kingdom come. Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, pray for that day to come and pray for this day to be more and more like that day. It's the kingdom of God. But until then, today, tomorrow, the kingdom, it's just as real. It's invisible. It's just as present, but it's hidden And it is continually and quietly and subtly growing as human hearts 
bow, kneel, surrender, yield before the saving grace of Jesus all around the world over the millennia of time. By the billions, the kingdom is growing. And today, what I want you to understand and think about are two important realities that Jesus is talking about regarding God's kingdom. Two things he's telling us in these parables, and uh, these two things come from both of the parables. Again, it's good probably to think of these parables as one. They have the same essential message. Uh, The heading might be something like this, two realities about God's kingdom and your treasure. So I ask you, what's your treasure? It's what I want you to be thinking about as we study this together. And, And the first thing Jesus says is your treasure is this. It's how Jesus describes what it means to enter his kingdom, what it means to enter his kingdom. Let me explain these stories so you can understand what I'm saying. I already told you that to to find and enter the kingdom of God, it it means that you personally have Jesus as your king, and, and that ultimate reality is an incomparable treasure. And so what Jesus is doing in these parables, he's telling us first how that actually happens how you come into the kingdom, how you enter the kingdom. Listen again to the first parable, verse 44. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. I have to ask this, does that bother you? Anybody read that and you're like, I don't know about that. Sounds a little shady. The guy doesn't own the field. You're wondering. Well, let me explain the... The guy is most likely, we don't know for sure, but most likely a day laborer plowing this field, row after row, up, back, up, back, hour after hour. And then one moment his plow hits something hard, like he thinks it's a rock or maybe a root. It jolts him to a stop and and he, he goes around and he looks and he sees there's this maybe ceramic jar of some kind, or maybe it's a wooden chest of some kind, and he he digs and uncovers it, and he opens it, whatever it is, and he is blown away by what he sees, a treasure, more wealth than he's ever imagined, incalculable. His heart's racing. He thinks, I have to have this treasure. So he covers it up, and he goes to the landowner, and he's trying to keep things casual, you know, Hey, uh, kind of like this field. It's pretty. You know, the dirt <laughs> smells good, you know. And I think I'd like to buy it. How much for the field? And the landowner's like, well, I wasn't really planning to sell this field. The guy says, you name your price. I'll pay it. And the landowner thinks, I got a sucker here. And so he thinks for a moment, he comes up with a really high, huge price for the land. The guy doesn't even bargain, says sold. And then he goes home and he has to look to assess everything that he owns. And he realizes quickly to buy this land, I'll have to liquidate it all. I'll have to sell everything. But here's the point of the story. Do you notice he doesn't hesitate? He doesn't flinch. He's willing to lose everything. Why? Because he's about, what he's about to lose doesn't even compare to what he's about to gain. And so in his joy, he loses everything that he might have this one thing. Now, 
Maybe you're still stuck on this guy hiding the treasure and going to the owner. Maybe you think it's kind of shady, but hey, let's be honest. We've all probably done something a little bit like this a time or two, right? You're in a store, you see an item, the only one left. You're pretty sure you want to get it, but you want to check something out first. So what do you do? You take the item and you walk a little ways. You hide it behind the Chia Pets (laughs) or no one else is going to look, right? And then you're like, I'll I'll go back after I check it out and decide, maybe find a cheaper price. I'll come back. We've all done it, right? And if you haven't done it, you're going, that's a great idea. I'll have to... (laughs) Try that sometime. Well, here's what you need to know, okay? Don't get distracted. Jesus is not commenting in his parable about ancient Near Eastern real estate ethics, okay? This is not what he's talking about at all. It's not the point. The point is the treasure. Now, the second parable, verses 45 and 46, a little different. This guy's a pearl merchant, This guy is Mr. Intentionality. This guy's on a mission. He is a pearl expert on a pearl search. And he's a guy who would travel all around, going to markets and to seaports and to bazaars. And he's looking for pearls to buy. And he's kind of what you might consider today a wholesaler. He's looking uh, for pearls that he can buy at a discount and then turn around and sell them for a profit. And one day, one day, he sees a pearl unlike any other pearl he's ever seen. And Jesus says, just like the guy out in the field plowing who runs into a hidden treasure, this guy, the pearl merchant, says, I will liquidate all my pearls. I will sell every pearl I have so that I can have this one pearl because it's the pearl of great value, worth more than anything. Now think about it, in both parables, what's happening? Both parables, someone has to make an assessment. Someone has to ask a question, is what I own better than what I could gain? And in both parables, because of the great worth of these treasures, these men sell everything they have to have one thing. They are willing to lose everything to possess one thing. That's what Jesus is telling us about God's kingdom. Notice this, and think about it with the kingdom. For these men, this is not a sacrifice. It's an opportunity. Opportunity. I hope you see what's going on in these parables. This one thing is of unimaginable value. It's incomparable. It's it's unrivaled. And the thought of having this one thing brings me such great joy that I will lose everything just to have it. And that's what Jesus is telling us. He, He says, when you come to a true understanding of who Jesus Christ is, son of God from eternity past, who took on flesh, lived a sinless life, died in our place, rose from the dead, conquering death in the grave. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has all authority and power and dominion. And one day he will return to make all things new, right all wrongs. And of his reign, they will, this, it will never end. When you get this, when you see this, when you understand it, you will joyfully lose everything just to have Jesus, because possessing Jesus is worth more than anything 
in all this world. You see, Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter what you lose to have me, you win. That's what he's trying to get us to see. And we need, we need to understand how the Bible is talking here. It's about conversion. This, for some of us, sounds like, oh, this is when I get really serious in my faith. No, Jesus says, this is how you get into the kingdom. And if you don't get into the kingdom like this, then maybe you're not in the kingdom. See, when we read about conversion in the Bible... It's not centered primarily in the mind, in the intellect. It's in the heart. It's not in, it's not in our thinking. It's in our affections, what we want. And I want to help you understand this. One place we see this so clearly is when the Apostle Paul shares his conversion story uh, with the Philippians. And this is in Philippians 3. Um, and if you know Paul's story, you know he was an enemy of the Christian faith. He hated Jesus, hated the church. He didn't believe Jesus was who he claimed to be. He wanted to stamp all the Christians out. But then he was going to do that on the road to Damascus, and Jesus shows up. It's just an amazing story. It's in Acts chapter 9. You should check it out sometime if you haven't read it recently. And I want you to notice what Paul says about this when he is looking back on it. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, he's really telling his conversion story. He's remembering how he had so much before he came to Christ. Remember, he was a, a Pharisee, so he was a prestigious person, had a lot of wealth, a lot of power and influence. And when he came to Christ, he lost all of that. He began to suffer greatly. Don't forget, he's writing uh, this letter to the Philippians from uh, a prison. Listen to what he says, Philippians 3, verse 7 and 8. But whatever I gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Do you see how Paul is speaking about his conversion? And I want to ask you again, I'm asking you this repeatedly. Do you see your conversion in these terms? I don't think most of us do. Paul says his conversion was about losing everything so he could gain Jesus. See, this, this assessment, this valuing that we make about Jesus Christ being the great treasure, that's the way you get into the kingdom of God. That's how you become one of Jesus' people. That's how you become a Christ follower. And Paul says, when I looked at my life without Jesus and, and all the treasure that came with that life, the power of prestige, when Jesus revealed himself to me and I saw who he truly was, the great treasure he truly was, what I would lose to follow him couldn't even compare to what I gained. And so I gladly suffered the loss of all things. And you only begin to get what he's saying when you get this word in verse 8. Rubbish. And we've talked about this before. I've told you before, rubbish is a very sanitized translation. Because the Greek word translated rubbish is the word skubala. Okay, that's the word in Greek. Everybody say skubala. You just said a bad word. <laughs> just telling you. This word was used in some different ways. It was used to speak of decaying corpses sometimes, kind of gross. It was used to speak of garbage or trash. But it was most often used to speak of excrement. 
So it's a very crude word. In fact, if we were to translate it a little more accurately, we might use the word crap. And if you don't like your pastor saying that word, scubala is a very much more intense word than that, actually. It's, if you're tracking with me, it's a vulgar, offensive word. In fact, I'm pretty sure that when the letter was read to the church in Philippi, there were kids that were listening and they looked at each other and one of them said, um, Paul said scubala. It probably happened. And the parents were like, look, we don't talk like that, okay? Paul's just making a point. You know how it gets sometimes. It gets carried away. You use that language at home. I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul thinks about his former life. He doesn't look back at what he used to have in the way that he used to live in and kind of you know, wish he could experience that again. He said, that's not precious to me. He said, everything I had, all that, it's just compared to knowing Jesus like a big pile of scuba. I gave it all up. And he said, I win because I have Jesus. Jesus is, he says, the great treasure. And I'm telling you, will you hear me? This is how you become a Christ follower, truly. You make an assessment You do an ROI. You do a cost-benefit analysis. Life with Jesus, life without Jesus. And when God opens your eyes to see Jesus, salvation that he brings you, the forgiveness of sins, being reconciled to God, having God as your father, having the Holy Spirit come to live inside of you and change you from the inside out, being in God's family, having brothers and sisters in Christ, on and on, your name written in the book of life. You think about all that, and you see Jesus is better than anything I could ever, ever want to have or live for. He's the greatest thing that I could die for. And so I am willing to give it all away. I'm willing to sell it all so I can have this. Again, do you see, becoming a Christian is not just praying a prayer. It's not just signing a deal. It's not just getting out of something. It's giving up everything to have the greatest thing. I'm going to give you a little more insight into that. Just uh, if you're flipping through your Bible, go to John 3.16. Maybe you already know this verse. It's a very famous one, and and, um, it's probably the most famous verse in the Bible. If you don't know it, you've at least seen the sign at football games, right? And uh, I want to read verse 16, but keep going through verse 19. This is what it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict Light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather instead of light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Notice this. They, they don't come to Jesus, and it's not because they, they read some books and they're cons, cons, uh, persuaded, convinced by the arguments 
They, they don't come to Jesus because they love darkness rather than the light. They, they love to be their own God and master, to rule their lives, run their lives. They would rather have the pleasures of this world than the treasure of Christ. That is why people reject Jesus, according to Jesus. And again, I read this to you because it's a contrast to the people in Jesus' parables here. They love the treasure. They love the pearl more than whatever they possessed. And so, key phrase here, don't miss it, out of their joy. You ought to circle, underline that, highlight that somehow. Out of their joy, in their joy, they sold everything like, like it was nothing. We might even put it like this. Maybe you should write this down and think about it. Jesus is not your God until he's your treasure. See, because truth is inescapable, you make a God out of whatever you find the most pleasure in, whatever the thing is that you cannot live without. That's your functional God. That's your Savior. And so until you make that assessment that says, Jesus is this great treasure of my life, to have him and know him and and to surrender to his rule and reign in my life, until that happens, you aren't converted. You don't know him. Now, this assessment is a work of grace. It's not something we earn by our effort because the Bible says it's God who opens our eyes. It's God who changes our palate, our taste. It's God that helps us lose our love for the darkness so we can start loving the light. God does all of this, but that's what has to happen. One of my favorite characters in church history is you probably have guessed, is, uh, is St. Augustine, and he lived uh, from 354 to 430. He's one of the greatest figures in church history. I love how he talks about his conversion. And, and if you don't know about him, you really should get to know him. He's a surprisingly, strikingly modern character. Before his conversion, and some of us don't think this sort of thing ever happened before a few years ago, but we would say that Augustine was a sex addict. That's how he talks really about his life. And that was really why he didn't want to become a Christian. He didn't want to follow Jesus because he knew if he followed Jesus, he'd have to give up his life of immorality, of promiscuity. And he loved that life more than he wanted Jesus. He didn't want to do this. And so as long as he loved his sin more than he wanted Jesus, he wasn't going there. But one day God changed his heart. One day as Augustine tells his conversion story, he's sitting in this garden, kind of like on a backyard patio we'd probably think of, and he hears this voice coming from somewhere over the wall. It was a child, and this child just kept see, saying, um, pick up and, and read, pick up and read, and, and he took it as a message from God, and so he got a Bible, and he just opened the Bible, and it fell open to Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, which said, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Augustine said in a moment, God converted him, opened his eyes, changed his heart. He saw that Jesus was better than any pleasures of the flesh. And he wrote this, Later, describing his conversion, he said, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys, fruitless joys, which I had once feared to lose. And I'm going to stop right there for a moment because somebody, there's some of us here, 
And I'm just telling you, I don't know if you're going to admit it to yourself this morning, but you're chasing fruitless joys and you're so afraid to lose them. And you need to ask God to open your eyes to see them for what they really are because he's got a treasure far, far better for you than those fruitless joys. Are you tracking with me here? Do you know what I'm talking about? He he says back to Augustine, he says, those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. And then he says to God, you drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. He's the true joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. You who outshine all light. You who surpass all honor. Oh, Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation, fruitless joys. Are you ready to to leave them behind and find the joy that really satisfies? Has Jesus become sweeter to you than any other pleasures of your eyes been opened, your heart been stirred? Do you now believe there is nothing greater than you could live for, nothing greater that you could die for than Jesus because Jesus is your treasure? See, this is what it means. Do you hear me? I'm saying it again and again. This is what it means to follow Christ. This is where it begins. Jesus becomes your treasure. And if it hasn't happened to you, it can happen to you even today. It can happen, and it can happen with joy. But these these parables are telling us something more uh, that is for everyone in this room as well. Secondly, your treasure is how Jesus describes what it means to live as a Christ follower. Not just to enter the kingdom, but what it means to live as a Christ follower. So if you've been a Christian for 50 years, this is what Jesus is using to describe the way you should be living your life. It's how you live the Christian life. You live the Christian life, let me put it this way, by daily assessing that Jesus is better, Jesus is more valuable to you than anything else in all the world, that only the joy found in him is real and lasting, that all other pleasures are shallow and momentary, that knowing Jesus, this is the greatest pursuit of my life. See, I live day after day the Christian life by making this assessment. Jesus is better. I make that assessment and then I act on that assessment moment by moment, day after day. I want you to go back with me uh, to Philippians 3, 7. I want you to look at those verses again. Anyone want to do some grammar? No one? Too bad. We're going to do some grammar here real quick. I want you to notice how Paul speaks of his conversion again. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted. What tense is that? Say it out. Past tense. I counted. Past tense. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. So this is his conversion. He, he says, as I described, I looked at my life without Jesus. Jesus is worth infinitely more than what I had. So I put my trust in him. He's my great treasure. But then look at verse eight. He says, indeed, I count. What tense is that? Say it out. Present. Every single day of my life, I count. I make this assessment. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. 
I have suffered the loss of all things, past tense, and then present tense. I daily count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, Paul is saying we come to faith in Jesus, we enter the kingdom of God when we recognize that Jesus is the great treasure. There's no one better than him. That life with him is worth more than anything else. We embrace him as our Savior, our Lord. But now, every day, for the rest of our lives, for all of eternity, we make another treasure assessment, the same treasure assessment. Actually, Jesus is better. We just keep making that assessment. And maybe you could think of it like this. I measure everything, the importance of everything in my life by how it impacts my relationship with Christ. See, this is how you live the Christian life. See, does this thing in my life, whatever it is, cause me to love Jesus more, cause me to want to pursue him more, know him more, walk more closely with him, listen to his voice more clearly, follow him more faithfully, then I want that in my life. Or does this thing cool and chill my love for Jesus? Does it tend to lead me away from him? Then I, I don't want that. I I want to count that thing, that person as a loss in my life. This is how we live the Christian life. Do you get it? Are you picking up what I'm putting down here? Tracking with what I'm saying? It's how we live every day. We we do this. We, We think this. We pray this. We follow this, you know, obey this. And what this means is that to live the Christian life, We need to be thinking all the time, what are these things in my life that would slow me down, that would cool my fervor and my ardor, my love for Jesus? Is there anything in your life that you're valuing more than Jesus? Maybe it's money. Would you give up Jesus for $1.55 billion? Some people would. What about your family? Sometimes some things that are good things can become the one thing when Jesus is the only one who should be the one thing. Are are there interests and hobbies you have and they just keep getting in the way of you pursuing Jesus? Maybe they're good things even uh, in themselves, but they're keeping you from valuing Jesus. What about social media? I'm not going to say any more about that. Think about it, though. Some of us spend more time on social media in a day than we do in a week reading the Word of God. And I'm not advocating legalism here. If you've been around long enough, you know that's not how how I roll. (laughs) I am calling you to do an assessment. God does give us blessings to enjoy, but we sometimes need to understand there's some things in life, some things need to be eradicated because they just stand in the way of us knowing and loving Jesus. And so if something is sin for you, then throw it away. Count it as scubula. Get rid of it. But then some other things, maybe they don't need to be eradicated. Maybe they just need to be moderated. We need them in moderation. They're taking up too uh, much of our energy and our tension, our, our affections. We, 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 in other words, we measure everything by the importance of how it af- affects our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And I just want to be clear, seeing Jesus as the great treasure will always mean that some other things will have to be counted as loss. There's no way around that. But the good news is he's always worth it. Amen? He's always worth it. I want to give you a few practical examples. Honestly, we could go on and on and on. And I do know that it's 10 o'clock. My phone goes off. I see stuff like that. So just relax, all right? We'll, we'll be out of here in 40 minutes or so. I don't know. But here's some practical ways that we do a treasure, what I want to call a treasure assessment. First thing I want to say is a treasure assessment is the only way for you to overcome temptation. Maybe you're here, you're giving in to the same temptation over and over and over again. Why does that happen? Well, at some level, fundamentally, it is because that sin is more satisfying to you than Jesus, at least in that moment. You're trying to find more joy and more pleasure in that than you do in Jesus. Uh, look at Hebrews 11. If you know uh, Hebrews 11, it's this famous chapter on faith. I want you to notice how it describes Moses in, in verses 23 to 26. It says, By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Remember, Pharaoh commanded that all Hebrew boys be killed. Verse 24 says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses is hidden. He's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. He ends up being raised in Pharaoh's house, but he grows up. And think about the wealth and the privilege, the prestige, the power that came with that. Verse 25 says, He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. This is the treasure assessment. He had to make the decision. I can keep knowing all the pleasures of God's house, or I can align, or Pharaoh's house, or I can align myself with God's people and be mistreated. And he chose mistreatment. Why? Answer, verse 26. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. New Testament would say he decided that Jesus is the greater treasure. He looked ahead to his reward. And whenever we give in to temptation, it's because we've made an assessment. We've preferred sin over our Savior. And the problem lies in our affections, our desires. We desire, at least in that moment, sin more than we desire Jesus. We have somehow come to believe, at least in that moment, that Egypt is better than Jesus. See, we have an assessment problem. And the reason you always have an assessment problem is you have a treasure problem. Where's your treasure? True confession, as your pastor, I love peanut M&Ms. I don't know if you knew that. And I really love five-pound bags <laughs> of peanut M&Ms, one of my favorite candies. So, some of you are not even writing this down. Um, <laughs> I, I just thought maybe you'd want to in case, I don't know. But if you offered me a, a, a five-pound bag of peanut M&Ms, I'd be glad to take them off your hands. Just a true story. But if you offered me a choice between a five-pound bag peanut M&Ms and a five-pound bag of gold, if I had any sense of value whatsoever, what would I choose? I would choose 
the five pounds of gold, and then I would go buy tons of peanut M&Ms. <laughs> but what if I were to say, you know, I just like the way peanut M&Ms taste, and I, I took the bag of M&Ms instead of the bag of gold, you would think I was crazy, right? It's kind of like this. You ever offered a, a, a real little kid, you know, three years old, two a dime or a nickel, which one do they almost always take if they're little? They take the nickel, right? Because it's bigger, it looks better, and you have to try to explain to them, you know, it doesn't work like this, you know. I know it looks better, it's bigger, but you want the dime, not the nickel. It's worth more. It's like, hey, I know you have a taste, for peanut M&M's, but you don't want the peanut M&M's. You want the gold. It, it has more value. And this is what God has to do in our heart. God says, I know this sin seems so pleasing to you, but if you could see what I have for you instead, the pleasures that truly await you when you walk in obedience to me, the blessings that I want to bring into your, your life, how I want to satisfy you. You're choosing trash over treasure. You're choosing nickels over dimes. You're choosing peanut M&M's rather than gold. See, the way we grow spiritually and overcome temptation is when we believe and really begin to feel down in our core, Jesus is our treasure. That's when we begin to have the power to make the choices. And I want you to think about it like this. Some of us think that we overcome temptation by just sheer willpower. I just got to do the right thing. But I want you to think about it like this. When you overcome temptation by willpower, and you can do that sometimes. It works sometimes. When you do that, what you're really exalting in the end is yourself, your goodness, your righteousness. But when you make the choice, I'm going to do what Jesus wants me to do because I love Jesus, and he's so beautiful and so precious I don't want to do that. I want him. When you do that, you're glorifying Jesus. And it's way more powerful. See, this treasure assessment helps us overcome temptation, and it's a glorious thing. Here's another thing. You can write this down. The only way you're ever going to take great risk for Jesus is through this assessment of treasuring Jesus. See, risk always means the chance of loss. And Jesus calls his people to do costly things, doesn't he? And there's going to be an assessment you have to make. Is Christ, his kingdom of greater value to me than my own safety, my own comfort, my own preferences? Give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Jesus is going to ask you to share the gospel with people. There's going to be some cost. There's some risk. You might lose face. Someone might call you a name. You know, you, you, you won't share the gospel apart from treasuring Jesus. Or Jesus calls us to real generosity. There's cost. There's sacrifice to that. And I'll just be real honest with you. I, I, many of us here, we're never generous because we don't treasure Jesus. We treasure our things more than him. Jesus is going to call some of us to serve sacrificially. And we're not going to be willing to do that unless we do the assessment of treasure. And Jesus is a greater treasure than whatever it is we have right now, whatever it is we might lose. You know, people, 
People all around the world right now are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. Some people are being martyred for their faith in Jesus. Why are those people, and there are thousands of them who are embracing the persecution, sometimes even death, they're embracing that with joy. It's because they treasure Jesus more than their comfort, more than freedom from pain, more even than life. See, you won't risk unless Jesus is your your treasure And then you could write this down. You also, uh, through a treasure assessment, this is the way you find contentment in the midst of loss. When you know that you already have something, a possession that you'll never lose that's of greater value than whatever it is that you could lose. See, Jesus promised us, you know this, in this world you will have trouble. Nobody likes to claim that promise. (laughs) But we're going to have sickness. We're going to experience grief. We're going to suffer injustice. And the only way we can survive that kind of loss is when we possess something of greater value than whatever it is we lose. And obedience to Jesus may cost you greatly. It may leave you only with Jesus. But here's the good news. Jesus is enough. And so you can be content. So how do you feel that? How do you make this happen in your life? Real simple answer, we grow in our treasuring of Jesus by dwelling on his beauty and his goodness. Like this merchant who painstakingly examined the pearl, looked it over, turned it around and around, so he became convinced this is the pearl of great price. We look at, gaze on Jesus. We dwell on him. We read the gospels. We read the Bible. We spend time in prayer. We, we spend time with other believers who can encourage us and challenge us to think about Jesus. And we see him more clearly. And he becomes more precious in our sight whenever that happens. And as you do that, you know one of the things you understand? As you dwell on Jesus and see him as your treasure, you begin to realize He's the one who lost everything, that he might have the pearl of great price, that he might have the treasure. And you know what his treasure is? His treasure is you and me. Jesus gave up everything so that he could have us. And when you see him like that, him loving you, dying for you, rising for you, caring for you every day, then God just begins to stir your heart for him and you begin to feel it in the core of your being. I love Jesus. I want Jesus more, more, more than anything in all the world. You also should write this down. This is a community project. We don't just do this on our own. In fact, this works a lot better, this treasuring thing, this assessing thing, if we do it with other people who who will uh, challenge us. Um, Y'all have listened way too slow today, so I'm going to leave some other stuff that I have here. I'm just telling you, you got to work on that. Um, uh, But I want to go to the very last thing, and I want to just bring this to a close because I think this is so important. A treasure assessment is how we commend Jesus to other people. You talk about what you love, don't you? It's just an inescapable law of human nature. You talk about what you enjoy, what you delight in, what you treasure. And the only way I'm saying is that we as a people are going to clearly 
and convincingly commend Jesus to our neighbors, to our city, to our workers, to our culture is when we are so full of joy and delight in him that we can't help ourselves and we talk about him, not when we figure out the best arguments to show them that they're wrong. It's when we are in love with Jesus and they just watch our love and they see our joy and they want to know more. This is how we live every day. We treasure Jesus. We treasure Jesus. A pair of parables. And they challenge us with the question, where's your treasure? I hope you will ask yourself that question. I hope you'll prayerfully be honest with yourself about your true answer to that question. Would you bow your heads? as we pray. As your heads are bowed, I just want to point out one more thing about these parables. I want you to to know and notice the difference in the two guys because they reflect some of who we are in this room. Some of us have come here, maybe we're like the guy in the field. We're not expecting anything. We weren't looking for a treasure, and yet there it is. And God, maybe today has opened your eyes to see Jesus. Will you be willing to make him your treasure? Some of us may be like the pearl merchant who is seeking and searching. He's been on a search all his life and looking for answers. And if that's you, will you be willing to see the treasure? God has made it clear Jesus is the greatest treasure in the world. Will he be your great treasure? Let's pray. Father God, give us the grace to see truth. Give us the grace, Lord, to feel what we need to feel, to feel the treasure, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, God, that comes from keeping the law, but the righteousness that is ours by faith, the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is the great treasure. And he is worth everything. And Lord, we give you thanks that we are your treasure. And we rejoice in that. And we ask you to grow our joy and our treasuring of you and your beauty and your goodness. Lord, may our hearts be so inflamed with love for Jesus that it just burns away all affections for the lesser things. And may we be so in love with Jesus, so full of delight in Jesus that we become this kind of compelling community that others see and others are drawn into that they want to know what we have found the glad enjoyment of our great God and Savior Jesus the Christ Lord you are good you are so good to us and we give you thanks most of all for Jesus we pray these things in his name and all God's people said